All right, what's up, everybody, and welcome to episode number 111 of Uncovering Unexplained Mysteries for Thursday, October 10th, 2018. My name is Josh Cannon. I'm here with my co-host, Mike. We are officially in the month of October, Halloween, spooky shit. How does that make you feel, Mike? It makes me feel all giddy inside, because I love I love this uh, this time of the year. You know, as a huge fan of horror, you know, it's, it's the horror month, so... Um, I just watched a really excellent, visually stunning, amazing film called Mandy with Nicolas Cage at his cocaine-fueled cagiest, <laughs> and uh, I cannot recommend that film enough, and it's perfect for this particular time of year. So, so Nick, Nick Cage is just uh, evergreen, man. He just can't lose. Even when yeah. he's losing, he's winning. Exactly. Oh, he's definitely winning here. Like that this is a role that only Cage could really pull off. Do you think he's embraced his like quirky yes. like, you know? This, this film is totally an example of that. There's a scene where he's just sitting in a bathroom with his tidy whities on, wearing a tiger uh shirt, and it's just downing a bottle of vodka, and there's no lines of dialogue. He's just doing his whole Cage <laughs> stick you know he's just laughing and crying and yelling and you know it's it's just awesome all these inappropriate unneeded emotions but for him it's it's, it's it great. works it works yeah it works and and with this character with everything that uh, this character uh red has went through in this film up to that point those emotions actually don't seem that far-fetched for once they seem pretty uh real because he's dealing with grief and anger. And so you have the whole uh, dynamic and back and forth of that. You know, he's crying, he's sad, and then he's angry. Yeah, it's great. Not the bees! Not the bees! Ah! Well, it's not like that. Like, this is actually a pretty decent, a pretty solid performance. I just love that. See, I actually liked The yeah. Wicker Man. Uh, I don't even... I, I Now that whole scene of Not the Bees has become, like, infamous, but, like... I don't I didn't even remember that scene at the time. I don't know, like all those like so bad it's good scenes, like that scene in Star Wars up ep what episode three where Vader's like, No Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like I don't I know I don't like I I always remember seeing scenes like that as a kid and thinking they were really stupid, but like I didn't want to like go online and be like, guys, oh my god, look at this, isn't it so bad? It just kinda like went over my head and I forgot yeah. about it. Yeah. And now it's like this culture is all about like picking out the stupid things yeah. and like focusing way too much on it. Oh, you know, like cinema sense and honest trailers. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But anyway, uh, um, this is a podcast about the show. Unsol it feels weird saying that because we've deviated so much. But uh, <laughs> well, it's that's a perfect uh, uh, show for the for the Halloween season, too. Yes. You know? Unsolved mysteries. And I'm not going to I'm not going to make promises about uh you know upcoming episodes for the month of halloween but i would really really love to end october <laughs> with doing our much talked about but never done or attempted <laughs> episode at the uh, satanic panic of the 1980s and uh night early 1990s i would really like to end october uh -huh. with that hopefully we can get around to that 
Maybe we could do at least something like uh, uh, Michelle remembers, and then maybe you know we yeah. have more talk cases about or stuff to talk about because that there's enough there for like potentially a whole podcast. Um, I wanted to bring up something though about our uh, our little co-host here, Michelle. Michelle oh, yeah. has uh, has gainful employment now. Finally, yes, I do. Yes, I do. Working at a, a local Michael's craft store, so it's almost like uh, oh, I'm, I'm working in my own store. Oh, there it was, <laughs> and there it was. Of course, it was. You knew it was gonna. <laughs> you knew it was gonna. I knew people were expecting me to do it, so I did it. You have to um, please the what you know, give the people <laughs> what they want. But not only do you have the job, but you've actually yeah. like put in considerable amount of like work in so far. So how? Oh yeah. How is it? returning back to the job the workforce after not having a job for how many years oh a long long time like how's it Uh, it's it's, it's been it's been uh fun i i think it's gone really well i i honestly i'm picking up things pretty quick i'm learning the layout of the store pretty quickly there are still a few places like the aisles and the wall area that i'm still a little on but uh, I'm picking up uh, on a lot of the other places where everything else is. Because even if you work for like a four or five hour shift and all you are doing is on the floor, you're going to quickly pick up where where shit is. Now, the thing is, though, there are certain things that change every day. So something might have been in one place the day before or a few days ago or last week, but now it's somewhere else. So... And, you know, because they always they change their uh, stock around a lot, too, because right now we have a lot of Halloween stuff. As soon as Halloween probably ends, it's going to be Christmas, Thanksgiving, you know, combo uh, over here. And so, yeah, I mean, it's 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 there have been some hectic stuff. I mean, for one, there was like some crazy shoplifter that we had to deal with recently um which was uh there's this lady who's and and her accomplices were just brazen and just fucking with us and it was so annoying leaving shit behind for us to pick up and so on and so forth and there's nothing we really could do because of corporate yep so it it, you know in my head i was tackling her and throwing (laughs) her ass out of the fucking store but you know, it's funny, you that. know, because, yeah, like the, I, I used to work at CVS and we'd get those same like s- just uh, grungy motherfuckers coming in there and, and shoplifting. And, and we knew they were shoplifting and they come in just brazenly, you know, time yeah. after time. Like when we knew because they knew that all we could really do is is get a trespassing warrant or uh, just follow them around the store and, and try to get them to leave. <laughs> yeah, it's it's insane because like uh yeah, I mean like it's funny too because it like really taps into your sense of like justice and honor and it's like cuz if you really think about it from an adju- objective like angle and take all the emotions out of it, this is some big company who already has insurance policies set in place against shoplifters. They they anticipate it's called shrink. They anticipate yeah. that they're going to get shoplifted from and they have these insurance policies in place to protect them and compensate them from that. So it really, at the end of the day, doesn't really matter if someone shoplifts every now and then, but like you as a cashier or working there, you're seeing this and and it's just, it's so flies in the face of like your moral fiber 
Yeah, it's it like frustrating. This, this is wrong. Yeah. You know, it do, it's like the principle of the matter. It's yeah. like it's fucked up, and they. I, I be never doing really it. experienced that on this level, so I was just I was just shocked by the limited uh, options we had to to try to put a stop to it, or or just to get the person out of the store. Yeah, I mean, there so, was one example at CVS one time where a guy came in um, at, for our overnight shift. The guy came in and robbed the store at gunpoint. And actually shot uh, my nighttime manager is this British guy named Martin. He shot him, and the bullet like grazed the side of his head, and Damn. he bled like he ran back to the office and bled all Holy over the floor. Fuck. And um, he like locked himself in the office. I guess the guy left, and um, I had to replace the damn. We ha they have in the CVS. They have like these carpet tiles, so you can uh -huh. you can take up each individual tile and just replace it with a new tile instead of replacing the whole carpet. So I had to replace the damn tiles that uh, that they had you know he had bled on or whatever. Shit. And it kind of taught me a lesson that day of like, it's not worth it. It's not worth um, trying to stop these people. You yeah. know, it's almost like that's intense. Yeah, it was crazy. I'm I'm glad I wasn't there, and and that's exactly why I was like, yeah, I'm not working nights. I'm pretty sure that that stuck with you. I mean, it had to have. I mean, that would have been that would have been something that would have lingered with me for months afterwards. Yeah, it freaked me out a bit. I mean, for sure, you know, like it, there was another incident. There was a bunch of incidents that happened at CVS. There was this one got. You never expect shit to happen at CVS, but then again, you wouldn't expect people to shoplift at Michael's. It's I, a yeah, fucking craft store. I know. Store, yeah, you know? you'd expect them to shoplift more <laughs> at CVS than you would at Michael's, because at CVS they have, like, toiletries, and they have things yeah. that could possibly be, like, stolen and then resold at a flea and, market. And, and I, and what the most frustrating thing about it was not just the whole thing where we couldn't do anything, is that the mess that she and her accomplices left behind that we had to clean up and then I didn't close that night, but I commend the, the workers who closed that night because they had a shit ton of extra go backs to do because of her dumb ass. Because it was and go backs are stuff that you have to put back on the shelf. And because she stole she was trying to steal so many things and left so many so much shit behind, the go backs were piled up to like insane heights. And uh, I was dealing with a lot just before I even left for the day. And I wasn't even close to finishing the basket that I had. So, um, yeah, that was extremely frustrating because it, it, it that just makes things really it's annoying because it's like, what? What? The f now I got a even more work to do. Thank you. Thanks a lot. You, you hoodie wearing bitch <laughs> there's another ho there's another hoodie wearing bitch on this podcast that we're oh, gonna yeah. talk about <laughs> yeah exactly so and speaking of work uh i've also been taking extra shifts so i'm hoping I'm, I'm taking one tonight so i'm hoping that that rub you know rubs off on the managers the right way and we'll see how that goes but I anyway um yeah, I'm enjoying it. Uh, recently, I just got on the cashier, and I was a little slow at first, but I'm starting to pick it up again. It's been a while since I've been behind the counter, you know, uh, taking uh, money and doing stuff like that and dealing with transactions. There's a few things that I'm a little bit slow on, or I should, you know, s some habits that I need to break, but I'm doing fine so far. I mean, I've only been up there for two, two uh, shifts. 
So you can't expect somebody who's been so so rusty to just come back in and just be like perfect. Yeah. So well, I mean, that's why you know the cashier is the lowest paying position because it requires the least amount of skill to do but hopefully you can maybe move up if you like you know working there and you know it's something that you can yeah. stick with um it'll at least well, g- give you a it, foot it, in your it's door. not like cashier it cashier gets this you get the same pay as, as a cashier as you do as a fl- as someone on the floor it's not any different yeah being on the floor that, is a thousand times better though in my opinion i hated being behind register especially for like honestly hours to at be time. perfectly I, I mean to be perfectly honest if they're comparing the two right now uh I'm starting to like lean towards uh, liking the cashier better because there are a lot of times on the floor where you got nothing to fucking do. So you're just walking around checking to see if there's anything left behind. And uh, at cashier, I, I noticed that time seemed to go by way faster. See, not me. Because when you're on the, the floor, you can walk around, though. When you're on the cash, when you're stuck behind <laughs> register, you can't go anywhere. You're stuck there. Yeah. I don't know. You'll. I think. I don't know. I think you'll change your mind on that after working there. For a I, while. I worked at the movie theater, Josh. I stood for hours taking tickets. I. I. I well, I, I can handle that. You're. You're insane. If you. If you don't mind standing well, in the like, same spot. I also like. I also like helping people. So that's another thing. Oh. Now, well, you're, I did. You're I did have sweet. a couple people who were. You know angry or whatever. But a lot of it's just miscommunication. Like they get upset at you for. I guess they thought you said something or they thought that you agreed to something, but I didn't. But because they thought I did or, or they thought something happened, then they're upset. It's like, hey, I I don't know what you're talking about. I did not. It Maybe I did say yes to something, but I don't remember doing that. <laughs> also, the people who are upset, they're usually upset about stuff that's out of my control. I'm sorry, I can't give you extra coupons. I can't. It's not. I'm. 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 I can't do that. I don't have the ability to allow you to use extra coupons. One coupon per customer. Yeah, that's they want to. They go in there. These coupon warriors, and they want to stack all these coupons. And we'll and, just be like, "Well, Joanne Fabric said it allows us to do it." And oh like, well, God, we're not Joanne Fabric. God, so, I hate sorry. that. Ugh, man, you reminded me why I do not miss working in retail. <laughs> They, they they take that whole customers always right thing way too fucking far. A, yeah, a lot of those yeah. places. Um, my band um, in 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 Josh news. My band played a show last night in St. Augustine at a place called Sarbes, and it went really well. Every show we've been playing at, because like our newest initiative after releasing the album in 2018, and then we released a bunch like a bunch of music videos. Um, because we were trying to learn the new material to play live. Now our newest initiative is playing out live. So every venue we've pretty much played at, we've had positive response in the uh, people who are in charge of booking and promoting. They always mm-hmm. want us to come back with, and they want to put us on shows with bigger bands. So that's a great sign because that's when you actually start getting in front of strangers who on a large Ooh. scale who haven't seen you before and you'll probably get a lot of new fans doing that so nice i tried the online stuff for a bit and i'm still going to be doing it but um honestly there hasn't been you know i haven't caught the internet world on fire with my band just because oh, it's difficult there's so much music online and everyone's yeah. 
competing for that space. There's arguably more competition now with bands and musicians than there ever was before because of how easy, much easier it is to get your content and your music out there to the public. Yeah, exactly. And, and you know, the amount of bands that only exist as internet bands, probably triple or quadruple the bands that are actually out there playing and hitting, you know, pounding the pavement. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that's why I think actually going out and still playing live is important. So, um, yeah, we're kind of spiraling, spiraling out from Florida and hopefully, you know, going to farther and farther away cities. So if you live in the South and you want to see my band play, comment somewhere about where you live and we'll see if we can swing through that area. I mean, I'd love to hit Georgia. I hope you eventually, you know, show up in the Pacific Northwest. Dude, that would be that would be a dream come <laughs> true. There's a, a local band from here and uh, they put together a 70 date tour like a three-month tour all on their own they just cold called all through the united states and they booked this tour um just completely on their own dime and they went out and they did it and they they ended up in the pacific northwest they ended up in oregon and i think they did something in washington it was it was insane like they were they were very inspirational to show me that it could be done because i didn't know you could book a tour on that scale being just a local Uh band so it was really impressive I guess if you keep uh, moving on up in the ranks, you you'd consider maybe taking that kind of risk. Yeah, I would. Yeah, we would for sure because it's it's what it's all. I mean, this podcast, my YouTube channel, and the band are the only things I care about in life. They're why I'm not married. They're why I don't have a kid. They're why I haven't gone to college to get a you know degree of any kind. Well, actually, that more or less has you, to do. You with, could you could you could still do college. You can make time for it if you wanted to. Well, that has to do more with the fact that I already have a good job being like exactly. karaoke and doing weddings and yeah. shit. So that's kind of a different thing. But anyway, let's mm-hmm. get into some unsolved mysteries. Now, one of these is technically solved, but there are aspects of it that aren't. And then the second one is solved. But it's such a great case that, you know, we just want to talk about it. So um, the first case we're going to be talking about is the Boston Strangler. And uh, this is a segment that is one of the earliest segments I remember seeing on Lifetime. I, I, I remember it just like it was yesterday. I remember the whole DNA stuff and all the and the reenactments and all of that. It was honestly the first time I heard about the Boston Strangler. I had known about the Boston Strangler. But I did not know the uh, particular uh, details of the case. So this is the first uh, form of media that I saw that really gave me the gruesome details of the Boston Strangler murders. Now, the Boston Strangler is known by many to be Albert DeSalvo because he was the one that was arrested and convicted of these murders. Now, in this particular segment, there there was actually the first time this case was covered was in a 1994 uh, segment in an episode uh, on May 11th, and uh, then it was covered again in 2002. Now, I remember the 2002 one where they're they're talking about the possibility of another Boston Strangler or multiple Boston Stranglers, and that always stuck with me. The idea that wow, there could be more than one of these killers or there could have been someone who took advantage of the style 
that the killer used that was in the news to get away with murder just so that, you know, copycat Boston Stranglers. Like, I thought that was a very uh, intriguing idea yeah, to think about. They were saying, they were basically saying, like, at that time in Boston, if you had a female that you wanted to dispose of, all you had to do was kill her in this specific way and the cops would just blame it on the Boston Strangler. Yep. So beginning in 1962, 13 women lost their lives before a figure called the Boston Strangler, a serial killer who broke into homes and killed the women in them. The first victim was Anna Slessers, 55, who was strangled with her bathrobe and then raped with a blunt object on June 17, 1962. The second victim was Paula Lepro, 57, who was sexually molested and then strangled with nylon stockings on June 22nd. The third victim was Helen Blake, 65, who was sexually mutilated and then strangled, her bra tied around her neck in the shape of a bow on June 30th. Now, it seems like that became uh, a very well-known marker for the Boston Stranglers, the, the, the something... Uh, a material, a nylon or a bra that was tied around the neck in the shape of a bow. So that made it a lot easier for copycats to uh, borrow that that form of killing as well. I mean, nowadays we'd probably, the, the police would probably put a little more effort into trying to figure out whether this was a copycat killing or a legitimate uh, example of a death by a, a particular serial killer or a suspected serial killer but back then it was there i guess that wasn't the case also forensics were kind of were in their infancy so they weren't really have the same uh techniques and abilities that that a law enforcement officers have today and detectives so the fourth victim was nina nichols 68 who was strangled and then had her nylon tied in a bow the fifth victim was Ida Erga, 75, who was sexually molested and then strangled to death, found on August 21st. The sixth victim was Jane Sullivan, 67, sexually assaulted and strangled with her nylon stockings on August 30th. The seventh victim was Sophie Clark, sexually assaulted and strangled on December 6th. Patricia Bissett, 23, was the eighth victim, found sexually assaulted and strangled on December 31st. The ninth victim was Mary Brown, who was stabbed and strangled to death on March 9, 1963. The 10th victim was Beverly Sammons, stabbed to death on May 8th. The 11th victim was 58-year-old Evelyn Corbin, sexually assaulted and strangled with her nylon stockings on September 6th. The 12th victim was Joanne Graff, 24, found sexually assaulted and strangled on November 23rd. And the 13th and final victim, 19-year-old Mary Sullivan, was found sex sexually assaulted and strangled to death on January 4th. 1964. <sighs> that was like a, a roll call of dead people. Yeah. Out of breath. <laughs> yeah, I bet. More than 13 murders were blamed on him and others were, were attributed to copycats. So I guess at time there were some that were attributed to copycats. But the number of murders that are attributed to copycats is not necessarily known. So, during this time, the women of Boston lived in fear. Understandably so. I mean, you wouldn't want to even walk out your front door. Or even stay at home. Because that's where a lot of these murders happened. You're in, your, you're in the comfort of your own home. Supposedly the safety of your own home. 
and you can't even feel safe there. I mean, you might be like, well, I'm just going to spend the night out of town <laughs> if I if I know anyone that is outside of Boston. He had a history of sexual offenses. Uh, so several months after the last murder, 32-year-old Albert DeSalvo was arrested for a sexual assault. He had a history of sexual offenses, and he became known as the Measuring Man and coaxed his way into women's apartments, claiming to be from a modeling agency. After measuring women for clothing, he would fondle them. On March of 1961, he was arrested and sent to a state correction facility. Soon after his release, investigators received complaints about a sex offender known as the Green Man. The offender was a maintenance worker who talked his way into women's apartments and assaulted him. Assaulted them. That would be crazy if they assaulted... The women assaulted him. As soon as he broke in, they just beat the shit out of him. That 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 would be good. That whole that whole measuring that, that, fiasco was uh that was yeah. that was so weird, man, and creepy. Like it's like, man, yeah. guys have just always been fucking creepy since like the fucking beginning of time, apparently. Yeah. Yeah. So these assaults led to DeSalvo's October nineteen sixty four arrest. In, in February of nineteen sixty five, DeSalvo was sent to Bridgewater State Hospital for sexual assault. Dr. Ames Roby was the medical director there. He believed that DeSalvo wanted to make a name for himself. He bragged about almost anything that he did. He told Roby that he wanted to be as famous as the Boston Strangler. He acquainted himself with George Nasser, who was under observation for a violent murder. Nasser believed DeSalvo was the Boston Strangler due to their conversations. Now, this, this piece here where he says that I want to be as famous as the Boston Strangler really makes me doubt that he was the one who was responsible for the majority of these killings because of the fact that I guess the Boston Strangler was already in the news at this time. And now he's saying he wants to be as famous as the Boston Boston Strangler. If he was the Boston Strangler, wouldn't he just be bragging about that too? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, you'd think, You've already gone that far. I mean, and he's clearly mentally ill or something. You know, he has some kind of deviancy about yeah. him. So he relayed this information to F. Lee Bailey, who would later become DeSalvo's defense attorney. And he also he would go on to uh, be uh, O.J. Simpson's, one of O.J. Simpson's um, defense counsel. Oh. Yeah. Hmm. Notorious. Yes. He claimed that DeSalvo wanted to write a book about his crimes as well. Bailey met with DeSalvo and helped and asked him to help find out what was wrong with him. DeSalvo confessed to the Boston Strangler murders to Bailey. By confessing, DeSalvo was apparently hoping to go to a mental hospital instead of prison in order to get out of his rape crimes. So there was a motive there for DeSalvo to say, I'm the Boston Strangler. Which makes you also wonder whether or not he was the Boston Strangler. Two days later, Bailey returned with a tape recorder and a list of details that, according to the Boston police, only the Strangler would know. Now, this is one that definitely makes me believe that he 100% was responsible for some of the killings because he knows very specific details. So, in turn, the tapes would not be admissible in court. During the confessions, he gave specific details the police had not released. He also gave detailed descriptions of the crime scenes. Dr. Roby, however, was not impressed by the confessions. He claimed that DeSalvo had gone to the crime scene several days after the murders and studied the crime scenes. Well, that's a possibility, too. That throws a whole wrench into that whole thing. 
of the monkey variety. Yeah. According to Roby, DeSalvo even had a photographic memory. Roby began to suspect that Nasser may have actually been involved in the murders. Nasser was arrested just about a few weeks after the last Boston Strangler murder. Nasser, however, claims that he was just an associate of DeSalvo. About half of the investigators believed that DeSalvo was a strangler, while the other half was not certain. DeSalvo's confession was leaked to the press and appeared in several newspapers. As a result, two women came forward. One was a survivor of a possible strangler attack, while the other was a neighbor of one of the victims. On March 20th, 1965, they were brought to Bridgewater to see if they recognized any of the inmates. Surprisingly, they recognized Nasser, not DeSalvo. DeSalvo, however, remained the prime suspect. Under the advice of Bailey, he was put under hypnosis. During the session, he claimed that he killed the women because he wanted to hurt his mother. However, he also claimed that he loved her and cared for her. The session did seem to reveal that he had strained relationships with his mother, wife, and daughter. Roby, however, did not believe that the information did not believe that the information that came out from the session was accurate. In the summer of 1965, the Massachusetts Attorney General's office conducted their own series of interrogations. Once again, the recordings were not admissible in court. Offer Susan Kelly obtained transcripts of the interrogations. She found that DeSalvo, that when DeSalvo gave an incorrect answer to a question, the interrogator would then guide him to give the right answer. And that's definitely a no-no. Yeah, we've seen that a few times at this point. West Memphis yes. 3, etc. Kelly was convinced that DeSalvo was not the strangler based on these interrogations. Bailey, however, was certain that he was the infamous serial killer. Of course, <laughs> he wants to write a book. <laughs> He struck a deal with the state on January 10th, 1967, and DeSalvo went on trial for the Green Man sexual assaults. He was convicted of the charges and sentenced to life in prison. He never was actually tried for the Strangler killings, but was named the killer. Over the next few years, several books and movies chronicled his life. Now that's interesting. He was never actually tried for the Boston Strangler killings, but they just said that he was, that he was the Boston Strangler. After six years in prison, he was asked to be transferred to a cell in a prison infirmary so that he could be isolated from the other inmates. He was found dead from several stab wounds on November 26, 1973, the same day that he told a psychiatrist, Ames Roby, that he was going to tell him the truth about the murders. Some of the inmates believed that DeSalvo had been killed over a botched drug deal. Others, including Nasser, believed that he was killed in a dispute over cuts of meat that he was allegedly selling on the prison black market. However, Roby believes that he was killed because he was about to reveal the truth about the Boston Strangler murders. Three inmates were eventually charged with DeSalvo's murder. However, their trials ended in hung juries, and no one was convicted. In recent years, closer scrutiny of the case suggests that DeSalvo was not the Boston Strangler, but got his facts and notes about the murders from Nasser himself, who may have been the real killer. Two survivors of attacks chose Nasser from mugshots as their attacker. However, Nasser continues to maintain his innocence in the murders. Of course he would. If he actually is the real Strangler, why would he admit that? <laughs> More recently, updated forensic, forensic analysis and DNA evidence proved in 2001 that DeSalvo was not the killer of Mary Sullivan, the 11th victim. Casey Sherman, Mary's nephew, has been investigating this case and found several possible suspects in her murder, including her ex-boyfriend and her roommate's boyfriend. He and offer Susan Kelly have also found suspects in the other murders. Now, this is where the bulk of this segment uh, 
comes from. This earlier stuff wasn't as uh was not covered as detailed in in the particular segment that uh Josh and I both watched on the box set the Bizarre Murders uh DVD set. Now even this is a little bit dated because there is an update where Boston police did another investigation, found uh, some more DNA, and they found that there was DNA evidence that linked DeSalvo to the murder of Mary Sullivan, and there was DNA that was found on the scene, and it, it was a near certain match to a DNA taken from a nephew of DeSalvo. Then they did another uh, exhumation. And they did some more tests and they found out that he was responsible for that particular murder. But that does not necessarily mean that DeSalvo was responsible for all of the the murders in the Boston Strangler case. So there were some really interesting things that were brought up, uh, potential theories for different killers. Uh, the ex-boyfriend who didn't like ascots, who there was a cut up ascot in the toilet, which does make you think like, that was a potential possibility. That was hilarious. Like the, yeah. the sister of the victim was like, like she would always get him ascots for Christmas or something or his yeah. birthday, and he hated ascots. It's like, what the fuck was the dynamic of that relationship? <laughs> like, what that is like a new level of passive aggressiveness. Like, here's another. Uh, you know, it's it's Christmas. He opens his present. Oh, great ascots. <laughs> I mean, is that something that like a typical guy even wears? I don't know. Like, I just think of Fred from uh, uh, Scooby Doo when it comes to ascots. Oh yeah, he did. what? Like what? I don't know, man. Was that a hot look in Boston at the time for the Boston guys to maybe be wearing ascots? Maybe. He's just like, oh, another ascot. I hate ascots. <laughs> They're ass. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's right in the Stop. name. Stop buying me ascots. How many more signals do I have to show you? And then finally, he just had to kill her. Too many ascots. So on the day that the first victim, Anna Slessers, was murdered, a painting crew was working in her apartment building. Two weeks later, the same painting crew was seen at the building of the third victim, Helen Blake. Casey believes that this is more than just a coincidence. He found that two of the members of the painting crew did not have their alibis corroborated with their boss or fellow workers. Now, that is something suspicious. There is a possibility that these, these uh, painting guys, they uh, decided to join in on the whole Boston Strangler copycat murders because um, they definitely have access to these uh, buildings. They were there at the time of these crimes so it would make sense that there would be a little bit more investigation into, into those, those painters, so to speak. Casey also found that there was also a possible suspect in the murder of Sophie Clark. The suspect was a former boyfriend who was seen entering and fleeing her apartment on the day of her murder. He also failed two polygraphs. Now, this reenactment, the guy who plays this boyfriend, he is a absolutely terrible actor. Like, this guy sucks. <laughs> He, he looks the part of, like, someone from this time period, uh, but, and he definitely looks like a creepy guy, uh, almost like a Boston uh, version of Alfred E. Newman from Mad Magazine, but it's just his performance is really weak. 
So he failed two polygraphs, and there was also a suspect in the murder, Patricia Bissett. The suspect was her boss because he had discovered her body and also had an affair with her. Casey discovered that Patricia was one month pregnant at the time, and there was now a suspect and a motive. However, investigation into all these suspects stopped after DeSalvo confessed to the crimes, which I don't understand why. I, I mean, the whole thing is like, yes, yeah, someone confessed to it, but there have been plenty of instances where people have confessed to crimes and they weren't necessarily the ones that committed the crime. So I don't know why the investigation would just completely stop at that point, especially for something as infamous and really important of a case as as the Boston Strangler. So the information found by Casey Sherman suggest, more than suggests DeSalvo's innocence. I don't think he was innocent. I definitely do feel that he killed someone. I, and we found out that it seems like he 100% raped and strangled Mary. But that does not confirm his culpability in the other murders because no biological evidence has been found in any of the other cases, which makes me believe that a lot of the murders in the Boston Strangler case are still unsolved. Uh, honestly, like I, I've never been that interested in the Boston Strangler case. It just didn't really do anything for me. That like it was just a a, a bunch of serial murders and yeah. you know some weird you know kind of you know. The murders were pretty gruesome, but it didn't, I don't know, it just didn't have that X factor that makes certain murders, like, more interesting to me than okay. others. Um, so, but I thought the guy who played DeSalvo in the reenactment was really good, though. Oh, yeah, he was great. He was fantastic. He was, like, fucking, he almost reminded me of, like, De Niro in the 70s. Yeah. Um, yeah. But, yeah, I thought it was weird, though, that um, the Boston Strangler segment we got on the Ultimate Collection box set was not uh, the original segment. And I guess it's no. because there was more updated stuff. Yeah, it was the expanded one from 2002. Yeah, I don't know. I, it, but the original, though, that's where you had like the the better reenactor. And I'd never seen that one. I didn't know there was a difference. I didn't know there was like a separate... I've, I learned a lot about... Uh, I thought I had known a lot about this show, but I learned a little bit about it um, doing this episode because um, when we get to the Unabomber, uh, I have some stuff to say about that as well. But um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, like I said, I, I, I wasn't too interested in this case. Uh, I understand it is like a historical thing, and I'm sure F. Lee Bailey was trying to profit off of uh -huh. the... Uh, the significance, the historical significance that it, it would eventually have, you know, down the road and all that, you know, with the and, you know, all the the movies that have been written about it and everything. But I mean, I don't know. It's just it like, for instance, it's not as interesting to me as like um, what was the killer in the uh, Elliot Ness uh, segment? The um, the was it was it uh, the fuck? The Skid Row Slasher? Something like that. Like, someone like that where it was, like, he had to have, like, a surgical, like, skill level in the way that he dissected. Well, well for me, I th what makes this one interesting to me is the fact that there's so much of this case that it is, that is potentially unsolved in terms of who actually committed uh, the murders. Because there, there's, there's DNA evidence that ties 
DeSalvo to one of the murders, but there's no biological evidence that ties him to any of the other murders. And the idea that there were multiple copycats, that intrigues me. I think that's interesting. But that's just me personally. Yeah. The idea that there was Boston Stranglers. Not a Boston Strangler. Boston Stranglers. Yeah, well, I, you know, I, I I think that it was, you know, front page in, uh, you know, all the news articles that was going on at the time and people were reading about it and they mm -hmm. were describing in gruesome detail all the, you know, methodology and all the kind of techniques the Boston Strangler would use and how they found the bodies and all this other kind of stuff and... So yeah, it made for a really good, you know, it it was like a blueprint for how to basically kill somebody and then have it, you know, get blamed on uh, somebody else, you know, the methodology and all that. Mm -hmm. So that's the thing, folks, being, being uh, you know, the early bird catches a worm. I mean, if there's a murderer out in your hometown right now and they haven't caught him yet, now's your chance to kill people <laughs> in the way that that person is killing people uh, if you want to get away with it. I don't even know if the local news even... Uh, provides that much detail anymore because of, because of the Boston Strangler case. Oh, I'm sure it was many. It took many other cases before they finally yeah. wised up and thought, "Hey, maybe we shouldn't be like printing like every single detail in case um, you know people try to like mimic this." Mm -hmm. But um, yeah, I don't know. That's pretty much. I, I don't really have a whole lot to say about this one, but it's one. It's one I avoided for a reason, you know. Like even on the uh, bizarre murders box set, like I, I always kind of skipped over this one. Huh. It just never really did a whole lot for me. Plus, like I didn't really like hearing about how like all the elderly women were like brutally like, uh, just. Well, yeah, but that that's that's what happened. Yeah, I, I know. know, but I I don't know. I just. I always skipped over that one for some reason. It just didn't really like hit. I mean, I look, I love a good murder case, you know, <laughs> I, I'm fascinated with, you know, stuff like, um, black Dahlia and stuff like that. But, uh -huh. uh, that's why I'm surprised you weren't as into this. Yeah. I don't know. This one just didn't really, just didn't really hit the right notes for me. Um, hold it does for me though. So, um, this is definitely one of those cases where we agree to disagree. It helps, too, that I'm nostalgic for it, because it was one of the first segments I remember seeing of the show. So that also helps. But I still think it's a, a, a fairly good segment. Even even with this new one, I haven't actually seen the old one yet. I need, I need to track that down, the, the original Boston Strangler segment. Because all I know of is, is the uh, update uh, segment from, uh, from the 2000s, from one of the last seasons of the show. The last few seasons of Unsolved Mysteries were, I mean, the more I'm like getting into them and watching them compared to the first few seasons, the last few seasons were kind of, uh, kind of rough, some of them. Yeah. I, yeah. I actually want to do a, uh, like. Well, I mean, the budget was slashed. They used a lot of stock footage, you can tell. Like, even in this particular segment, they should, they're talking about the exhumation of, I believe it was, um, the, the final victim, uh, Mary Sullivan. And they cut to a scene, which is clearly from an early, earlier episode of the show, like an early segment from like the late 80s, early 90s. You can tell because it's grainy. The footage is grainy. The and the the people in the shot, 
They are all wearing clothes that are not the same type of clothes that you would see people wear in the early 2000s. It, it, it clearly, I think it was like from one of the first few episodes. Because wasn't there an exhumation that happened with the, the lady who, like, she fell and hit her head on a rock, right? Didn't they exhume her body, I think, in like the first ever episode? <laughs> um, I could be wrong. I, I don't know. I, I, I know there definitely was a, a reenactment that had like the backhoe and so on and so forth. And I can see why they reused it because it's expensive. <laughs> I mean that that's that's not you know and the budget was was slashed for the lifetime version so it's like we can't really afford to rent a backhoe and go to a graveyard and dig up a fake body like we can't do that we don't have the money for it bring up that clip from <laughs> uh the first season <laughs> Yeah I mean if they already have um you know their own stock footage. Essentially, it's like only nerds like Mike are gonna realize and are gonna notice yeah, exactly. this. You know, yeah. so fuck it. You know. So anyway, going on to our next case here, we were going to talk about the Zodiac Unabomber kind of connection, and you know, were they the same person? Because Unsolved Mysteries, at least on the Ultimate Collection. Under the Bizarre Murders, they they build the Zodiac Unabomber as kind of uh, the same person, or it could have been the same person. But and I think they also use stock footage in the in uh, from the first ever segment that covered the Unabomber in that particular. Yeah, and one, and, remember and I'm gonna actually like uh, when you sent me that segment today, that that was actually so to finish my last thought. Um, we're only gonna yeah. cover the Unabomber because. Uh, as Mike did more research into the Zodiac killer, it just became clear that Zodiac needs his own episode because there's a lot more yeah. there than just, you know, it wouldn't really be doing the Zodiac killer justice. I mean, that sounds kind of no, fucked up. not at all. Sounds kind of fucked up to say not doing the Zodiac killer justice. That's just a weird sentence to come out of my mouth because he's yeah, a murderous piece of shit. But however, yeah. the case of the Zodiac killer, I guess I should say, doing that justice um, so we're just going to focus on the Unabomber, a.k.a. Weird Al in the 1980s um, <laughs> for this one. <laughs> it's uh, it, He had to have gotten called that like back then. Well, Weird Al even admitted, I think there was like an I Love uh, the 80s or uh, something, you know, 90s or one of them. Weird Al actually did. He was like, yeah, you know, they're talking about, you know, I look like the Unabomber, you know. Okay, I'm and, glad he acknowledges know, that. Yeah, so he did. He did acknowledge it in pop culture. Yeah, my dad apparently got that comparison too back in the day. Like they were, <laughs> they would say that about him. He did kind of look like he. Well, see, the thing is, I mean, any white guy in the '80s who. Well, my dad had my dad had had a mustache. Yeah, I mean, they all had mustaches. To that. So all you got to do is, so is have like he could have. Yeah, have slightly curly yeah. hair, uh, a mustache, and put a hoodie on in some aviator glasses. Hey, you kind of look like the Unabomber. Um, it's like one of the easiest uh, Halloween costumes ever. I might actually dress up like the Unabomber this year. That that might be that might be fun. <laughs> um, but yeah, like it would suck though if someone else shows up dressed as Unabomber, and so then you have like the two. Like that always sucks. Well, the gig that I'm gonna be at when te when Halloween technically lands on, it's gonna be at a uh, a more urban gig. So I, I, yeah. I don't I don't think that's gonna happen. I don't think someone's gonna dress up like the Unabomber there. Um, <laughs> but anyway, um, yeah. When when you sent me this segment, um, 
I never realized that that uh, Unsolved Mysteries had done their very own segment on the Unabomber because I always yep. thought they shoehorned it into the Zodiac and just made that all one episode. But no, that was actually a a, a remix that they did after the fact where they replaced Robert Stack for Carl Malden. And I, this was the first time I had actually seen a Carl Malden uh, yeah. episode. Because this is from uh, the third special. So the first special had Raymond Burr, I believe, as a host. And then Carl Malden did the second one, and I believe the third one as well. Yeah, and I had never seen anyone other than Robert Stack. So it was really weird, like, looking at a segment that had the Unsolved yeah. Mysteries feel, but the, vo know, the voice yeah. was just all wrong. You're just like, what is this? Yeah, I mean... It, he didn't do a. Did, did I step into an alternate universe? <laughs> yeah, he didn't do an awful job hosting. Like, no, I thought Carl Malden compared to Raymond Burr. I thought he was the better host for me personally. No offense to Raymond Burr. I thought Carl, Carl Malden. He 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 did a good job narrating it, and definitely seemed to have passion for what for the narration and for what he was saying. He's just not as mysterious. Or as uh, eerie as Stack is, so he doesn't carry that same presence. No, not at all. He he was, he kind of had like a little bit of a, you know, he kind of had like a bit of a. His voice just wasn't as as cool and menacing as Stack's. Maybe if it was like another show, he he, you know, he'd be perfect for it. But like for Unsolved Mysteries, it didn't quite work. And you, and I'm glad that the producers of the show, they were like, yeah, you know, let's try to find someone else to kind of fit the vibe and the tone of the show better. And maybe somebody got Robert Stack and the rest is history. Maybe somebody a little bit more dashing. Carl Malden wasn't exactly yeah. a very dashing looking guy. No. He kind of looked like your so, grandfather. Yeah. So maybe maybe they were like, I wonder who came up with the idea for Stack. Was was it was it John and Terry or were they was Stack recommended to them or did Stack reach out? That's something I'm really curious about. Yeah, I don't, I don't know if that's even really. Uh, been, I don't even know if that's even been discussed. Yeah, it's that would just be like oh, he's he just took took the job later. They went with Stack. I wonder what Carl Mount Malden's reaction was. <laughs> Maybe he thought he had like this new sweet deal. Hosting this show on NBC, and then they're like, "Yeah, Carl, um, we like you and everything, and and you did a good job, but we just don't think you're quite dashing or debonair enough. We don't think you're mysterious enough for the show Unsolved Mysteries. And we don't really think you're going to survive the entirety of the show series. Um, so because you're like 85 and uh." I, I don't know if he was 85 for sure at the time, and but yeah, he, he was, was pretty he was, old. He was probably like, well, I'm going to go take a nap, and then when I wake up, I'm really going to let you have it, young person. I'm really going to tell you how he... I feel then. <laughs> I'm going to take some Geritol and really let you have it there. Why did I make him I slightly Irish? I don't think Irish? he was as old as you think he was. I really don't. Well, Mike, it was also a very, very shitty VHS rip, so it was kind of the artifacts of uh, the VHS kind of obscured, and you know, it wasn't like an HD picture where I could see every no. every uh, sunspot no. on his bald head <laughs> or liver spot. Um, sunspot. Liver spot is what the word I was looking for. So they went with Robert Stack and the rest. Dude, once history. you go Stack, you don't go back. 
Yes. You know, so that's that's how it, so true. That's how it is. So that being said, though, this segment was excellent. I thought this is a really good segment. Yes. And the only thing that was missing was stack. Yeah, it really. I mean, you know, they show the guy who picked up one of the Unabomber's bombs and it's his shows his blown off fingers and his fucked up uh, arm and uh, the reenactments were pretty good. Although I did think it was kind of hilarious. Uh, the, the reactions. Yeah, that, you know. when the actor would go to pick up the bomb and the bomb would explode and literally the, the actor would throw their hands up as if they just like put their hands around like a hot like a uh, pan of macaroni and cheese or something out of the oven and they, yeah. they grabbed it without oven mitts and you just throw your hands back like ah that's hot like that's exactly no i i thought i thought it was more like they were doing their best impression of the wacky waving inflatable arm tube man just like whoa yeah yeah it did yeah you know i mean of course they're not going to be able to show like some uh, dummy, you know, full of like blood packs, you know, just explode no. and blood goes everywhere and dismemberment. No, but the 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 uh, interview with the witness who who saw the his boss die, or or, or in in the process of dying, that was chilling. Yeah, that was very chilling. Yeah, they had this um, the the first death caused by the Unabomber. They were talking about this guy was leaving the back of this. Um, Comp- Gary Wright, I believe, is his name. Okay. No, Gary Wright survived. Um, I'm trying to think of who was the guy. Uh, Hugh Scrutton. Okay. He died. So, yeah, he, like, walks out the back of the building that he worked at, and he sees this package, and he goes to pick it up, and this other guy, the guy being interviewed, hears this explosion, and he goes back there, and he says how the gu- his boss was standing there without a hand and a hole yeah. blown through his chest, and mm-hmm. just staring at the other guy with this look of complete shock, like what just what just happened to me? And then he died uh, moments yeah. later. Like imagine mm. that. Imagine going out like that. That's insane. That's like witnessing someone die because of like an IUD. It's like if you were in the middle of the hurt locker, you know, in that sort of situation, you know, just seeing someone get blown up by a bomb in the middle of war. That's not something you expect to see when you're working at a computer store. Yeah, and I mean, it's just like a perfect example of like how Unsolved Mysteries kind of, even from the beginning, they they had this, um, you know, kind of this method of interviewing people and letting them bring you the the fear almost. It's almost like yeah. what they didn't show was scarier than mm-hmm. what, the, you know, the reenactments, because hearing the guy recount the story of seeing his boss with his fucking hand blown off and chest yeah. blown open and then he dies like shortly thereafter it's like that's a lot scarier to me than seeing the reenactment where you know he flails his arms back you know touching the hot macaroni tray um yeah but uh yeah so anyway the the nitty-gritty of this case is um starts off by saying that the fbi is looking for a serial bomber known as the unabomber responsible for several bombings throughout the united states on May 25th, 1978, an office worker watched a man in a gray hooded sweatshirt. Uh, reminds me of that stupid Adam Sandler song. Red hooded sweatshirt. Wham ding dong. God, I hate. I hate Adam Sandler now. He started out so funny and now he's just uh cute. Well, you talked you did a cool video where you were talking about his stand up yeah. al- his uh, albums. Yeah, his comedy CDs and how much his comedy CDs. How far superior they were to anything else he's ever done. Anyway, I'm totally getting off topic here, but uh, an office worker watched a man in a gray hooded sweatshirt set down a package wrapped in a brown paper bag on the campus of the University of Illinois 
and then depart. A security guard investigating the package was injured when it exploded. A year later, another package exploded on May 9th, 1979 at the same university. Within the next two, within the next year, two more bombs were placed or mailed from the Chicago area. All made, all, all made, God damn it. All made <laughs> by the same individual. This led investigators to believe that he lived in the area. In 1981, it is believed that the bomber moved to Utah. The next two bombs originated from Salt Lake City in Provo. Whatever the fuck Provo is, I'm guessing that's a city. I'm sure we have at least one Utah. listener there. Um, it's called Provo, Utah. All right. <laughs> if you're from Provo, Utah, let us know. Send us proof. I will send you a t-shirt. In 1982, he placed a device disguised as a student's physics project at the University of California, Berkeley. In 1985, he planted four bombs. He mailed one from Oakland to Boeing's headquarters in Seattle. On May 15th, he placed a bomb disguised as a binder attached to a checkbox in a computer lab at the University of California, Berkeley. The bomb sat in the lab for three days until it captured the attention of Air Force Captain John Hauser. When he tried to open it, the bomb exploded, ripping off the fingers on his hand and severing two major arteries. Despite his injuries, he survived. And that was the guy that we were telling you about that was interviewed. And this is a guy who also was... uh in line to become an astronaut. Yeah, bummer for him, man. Jesus. So yeah, his dream job was just ripped away from, blown away from him, literally, by this sadistic piece of shit uh, who just, I guess, I guess he got a sick thrill out of blowing people up. Yeah, well, they go into how it was, he was revolting against technology or the system or something. Well, yeah, but he's still he's still getting a thrill yeah. out of it. Yeah. You know, whatever the motive is, it's still a lot of thrill killing and, and carnage. True that. In November, he mailed a bomb from Salt Lake City to the University of Michigan. Finally, in December, the bomber killed his first victim, Hugh Scrutton, a Sacramento computer rental store owner. Jeez, remember a time we had to like rent a computer? How like an- yeah. how antiquated is that notion nowadays? Or when you had to rent a VCR? Oh you imagine yeah. Imagine people having to rent rent DVD or Blu-ray players. That it was so expensive. I remember at Blockbuster you used to be able to rent video game consoles too. Yeah. Yeah, and it was like super expensive to do. Anyway, I digress. Um, he died in a violent explosion in the parking lot behind the store. The bomb. The bomber planted the device hidden in a brown paper bag at 10.30 a.m. At 12 p.m., Hugh went out for lunch and discovered the bag. I'm reading shitty today, folks. You're just going to have to deal yeah. with it. Um, well, we, we both kind of read shitty today. but yeah. Yeah. My brain, <laughs> my brain's still a little foggy from all the libations I took part in last night after the show. Um, oh, so we got we got so this is where we have slightly sloshed Josh. I'm not sloshed. It's <laughs> post slosh. It's not in the middle of slosh. Slosh Josh. Um, but yeah, slosh Josh. Uh, but anyway, um, I, I thought it was uh, quite um, intriguing that he normally did not have lunch outside of this shopping mall that he worked in. Because his uh, his business was a part of like this of a, a, a shopping mall, not like a typical like mall that you think of, but like you know the stuff where you have all these different stores in one area. Um, 
So also he normally would go to lunch in in one of those uh restaurants that were that was in the area in the strip mall that his business was in. But then he was going to go for a meeting with somebody on the outside, so he went go went to go to his car to go to some meeting for lunch and then picks up this bag and and dies horribly. For me I'm like I'm not even going to touch it. Like, I wouldn't have even... I would have just been like, this is suspicious. This is so suspicious. Uh, this is... Th th there's like a neon sign over this bag that says, do not touch. I'm calling the cops. Well, because it's shows like this, again, I say it all the time, because it shows like this <laughs> instilling that healthy dose of paranoia into me. Yeah, I don't... I don't fuck with strange... And the thing is, is like, in the reenactment, um, they showed one of the bombs that he put down, and it literally was like... Maybe um, like uh, six inches of a uh, two by four um, nailed together with another six inch piece of two by four. And then sticking out from the top two by four, there was all these nails and it was set in the parking lot. And, and there, his bombs were made to grab people's attention and, you know, make them curious about what it is. And when the guy picked it up, the, it exploded. I don't understand, like, where it was. It literally looked like two pieces of two by four nailed together. Like, how how does something like that explode? I mean, I guess maybe the inside of it was like hollowed out or something. But I mean, like that. If you watch a documentary about the Unabomber, it'd probably explain it all. Yeah, because that just did not look you. like a bomb to me. I mean, I guess I'm expecting like the fucking black bowling ball with the candle wick sticking out of the top or something. <laughs> <laughs> like, and then have Batman show up and try to throw it in a river before it blows yeah, up. Yeah, that's, that's, yeah. that's what I think of when I think of a bomb. Uh, that just shows you how little I've experienced like war <laughs> in my life, which is a good thing, I guess. Well, I, I don't have to guess. I know it's a good thing. But I mean, th that at least, okay, that that's obviously something that's like, okay, like a piece of wood in the middle of the road with a nail. That that looks like a bomb to me. It looks like a bomb to me or something that I'm not going to touch. I don't, I don't, you know, I'll tell someone about it. Uh, there's this suspicious looking uh, two by four sitting in the parking lot. I'm not going to touch it. Let's call the police. Uh, it, it looks extremely suspicious to me. Uh, and then and the paper bag, that's like a, that's like a red flag. That's like, come on. Like, don't well, even, the paper don't bag though, it. I mean, you could, you know, you, uh, my first thought would be like, oh, it's some homeless guy's 40 ounce that he just left on the ground. You know, it was a big paper bag though. God, that, that, mu that must've been a huge. Did you ever, did you ever ounce. used to go to the gas station, like with your parent or something? And then they, they let you get those individually wrapped pieces of candy, like the Reese's and the taffy Yeah, and they'd put it in yeah. the, and the store clerk would put it in the brown paper bag, the little one. Yeah. Was there anything better than like getting pieces of candy out of that little brown paper? It's almost like the brown paper bag made the candy <laughs> taste better or something like, I don't know. I just remember that as a kid. Like, so, so did the brown paper bag make the bomb? better uh yeah <laughs> in this maybe. instance could have you know uh so well it enabled him to be able to hide a bigger bomb because this is clearly a bigger bomb than the one that the guy picked up in a parking lot later but with this i mean you would think that the unabomber would have been in the news at this point because of all these other different bombs that he tried to set and all these other things so but maybe, you know, Scrutton just didn't really keep track of that kind of stuff. Yeah, probably. Yeah, I don't blame him for 
thinking nothing bad would happen. I mean, who would ever fathom or think that there would be a bomb waiting for them outside the front, outside the back door of their establishment? I mean, no one would think that. Yeah. So in Salt Lake City, Utah, on the morning of Friday, 20, uh, morning of February 20th, 1987, the man planted another homemade bomb in the parking lot of the computer store. This is what I was just talking about. He disguised a bomb, the bomb as a prankster's device to blow out car tires. Witnesses got their first look at the bomber, a white male with reddish blonde hair in his late 20s. That morning, Gary Wright, the owner of the store, arrived at work and discovered the device. As he picked it up, it exploded in his hand. Fortunately, he survived. Each of the bombs were created from simple hardware store items, such as batteries, strings, glue, fishing line, discarded pieces of lamps, pipes, recycled screws, and match heads. The bomber was extremely careful not to use parts or numbers that could be traced to him. He also made the bombs look non-threatening so that no one would notice the danger until it was too late. In some cases, he even mailed the bombs inside of books. Uh, the FBI began calling him the Unabomber because he liked targeting universities and airlines. The FBI opened a special bomb hotline to take in and investigate hundreds of tips. Their profile for the Unabomber suggested a white, middle-aged loner. Based on the way the bombs are constructed, it is apparent that the bomber had specialized knowledge of soldering and metalwork. He also had a, access to a drill press and soldering equipment. There's another interesting case on Unsolved Mysteries where uh, someone was mailing... The televangelist? Yeah, uh, when, bomber? Not only that one, but the, there was a guy, mail or a person, probably male, uh, mailing books, and when they would open the book, it would actually shoot a gunshot into your chest or wherever, it, uh, you know. Oh, I don't remember that one. Yeah, oh. yeah, it was really cool. Well, it was, a, it was an interesting case because it was, like, really fascinating, but... Yeah, this had this one lady on there, and she opened the book where she was standing on the wrong side of it, and it just shot into the wall. What season is that? I don't remember. It was a. Um, you should definitely set that aside. Yeah, I know. In the televangelist bomber. Yeah, we could do a whole case. bomb, <laughs> whole bombisode. <laughs> You'd be like this. This podcast. Yeah, funny is story. The, bomb. the televangelist bombing. <laughs> that was Joel Osteen's father. Wow. And they even had Joel Osteen's, Osteen's sister on that episode. I was wanting to see a young Joel Osteen to see if his <laughs> if his forehead looked even more pulled back. That dude, yeah. it looks like they took his face and just pulled his forehead back and stretched his skin back as tight as they could. Because he's got uh -huh. these real squinty eyes and his like teeth yeah. are always really sticking out like he's just like, Ouch, my face is pulled he kinda, back. He kind of reminds me a little Martin Short tiny bit yeah i don't know but uh i i think that guy's trash after that whole hurricane hit texas and he wouldn't let anyone stay in his fucking church and how much um money the well dude to has. be perfectly honest i mean any televangelist who's like wearing these thousand dollar suits and flying around in fucking uh private jets i i i, I think are pieces of shit anyway he's technically he's I, I don't i don't agree with the idea that oh all of the money is being used for the church. I don't buy that at all. I think they're using that money to buy jets, to pay for vacations, to live lavishly, to and and the church is just a front. Um, he's technically not. Lifestyle. He's technically not a televangelist. He's just. Well, I guess. Oh, he's. I guess. Yeah, he is. He's on television and he's an evangelist. Yeah. So I guess. 
I don't know. I think tell he doesn't hit people up for money, though. That's the thing. Like he doesn't actually ask them for money. They just the he's just he wrote a bunch of books. Uh, well, yeah, but that's still the thing. Well, he he might be asking. I mean, you know, maybe in his church, you know, asking for donation, donations. Yeah, probably for donations. But he's just he he got really successful on that whole prosperity uh, gospel. Well, yeah, and a lot of people but, buy into that. And and um, I mean, I th I still think he's a piece of shit. But like, it's not like the 1980s televangelists who are like, we need three million dollars right now to save this little <laughs> little Timmy's legs. His legs are mangled. Or that one guy who's all like. I need the I need a million dollars or God's gonna take me home. Yeah. <laughs> Cause he wants to build a hospital or something like that, if I remember correctly. Um but yeah, uh I just I, I I just absolutely love televangelists. That's just my thing. Um but anyway, um when it comes to this particular segment, I thought it was really cool when they showed the POV of the Unabomber like building his bombs. Uh, that was a nice touch. They didn't have to do that, but they did that. And I thought it was a nice, that was a really nice touch. It was a cinematic uh, addition to this segment to have like the POV of the guy putting the bombs together. The reenactor, the guy, the actor who played the Unabomber, he had a handlebar mustache. The mustache wasn't right. It, it, it was like, is this like the Unabomber's cousin or something? Because this doesn't really, this, this looks like the Unabomber to me. Doesn't look like the sketch, because he clearly had a handlebar mustache or a longer mustache. Yeah, than the Unabomber did in the police sketch. All right, so you want to read the uh, results, and while you do, I can. Uh, while you do that, I'm gonna put a pizza in the oven because I'm starving. So I'll be <laughs> right back. Okay, so the results of uh, this case is that uh, he was captured. The Unabomber was a figure that remained elusive for 17 years when after the bombing of the Murrah Federal Building was bombed in April of 1995, he tried to gain nationwide attention again by sending a deadly package to the president of California of the California Forestry Association in Sacramento. Although it was addressed to the former president, it was accepted by Gilbert P. Murray, who became the third fatality after Thomas J. Mosser, an advertising executive in North Caldwell, New Jersey. The Unabomber also sent a rambling message to his previous victim, David Gelanutter, a computer science professor at Yale University who lost his right hand and eye in a June 24th, 1993 bombing. In a letter to the San Francisco Chronicle, the Unabomber threatened to bomb a plane leaving Los Angeles. The FBI took the threat very seriously, but in a letter written to both the New York Times and the Washington Post, he said he was tired of making bombs and he would stop, but they published his manifesto. Industrial society and its future, a 35,000-word tirade about how technology made life unfulfilling and how it inflicted damage on the world. The gamble worked, and the bombing seemed to stop, but by publishing the manifesto, the FBI hoped someone would recognize the handwriting in the letters. And that apparently worked, because in January of 1996, David Kaczynski Notice the similarity in the writing of the Unabomber letters to that of his that of his brother, Theodore Kaczynski. In the ensuing investigation, federal officers staked out Ted's forlorn one-room cabin in the isolated wilderness of Montana, finally capturing Ted in April of 1996. The cabin was a bomb-making factory, only 10 by 12 feet in area and full of ingredients for making bombs, notebooks, and bombs in early assembly. 
The 54-year-old Kaczynski was a former professor of mathematics about the, at about the same time of the Zodiac Killer, later becoming one of the most hunted fugitives in the 20th century. In 1998, Kaczynski pleaded guilty to murder, attempted murder, and terrorism. He was sentenced to life in prison without parole. Yeah, I, th there's no way that um, the Unabomber and Zodiac were the same person. There's no fucking way. I mean, the guy was working in a different part of the country. Their modus operandi were completely different from each other. Um, I don't know. The time periods... That would be interesting. The time periods weren't... weren't that weren't would up. definitely be a fascinating... Uh, Turn of events. Well, that that was some of the theories going around that Ted Kaczynski was, you know, was also the Zodiac killer. But as they said in the, we could talk. We'll we'll talk more about that theory in uh, an upcoming episode of the podcast, which is going to be all about the Zodiac. Nothing but Z the Zodiac. Yes. Um. So that was the Unabomber segment uh a very enjoyable uh very trippy to see carl malden in the fa in the place <laughs> of uh robert stack i had never actually I, you know i heard of the specials but i never actually seen them um so yeah i mean i would say this particular segment is my favorite segment out of all of the specials but there are some segments in 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 the first three specials that are that are solid cases as well that i think are worth covering sometime on the podcast yeah sure i mean why not we're we are we are getting to scraping the bottom of the barrel at this point of <laughs> cases so we need <laughs> cases to talk about not really i mean i could dig through um i could dig through these well, we just came up with two right now the bomb the bomb uh, cases and i never i did not know about the one with the gun in the book that yeah something like some crazy hardy boys shit <laughs> Yeah, it, it, it was a very interesting case for sure. Um, so this is the part in the podcast where I like to make the community at large, you know, our, our listenership, our listener base aware of some of the people who, who listen to the podcast. And um, I just think it's a public service. And uh, again, you know, we got this guy, Ryan Crum, who uh, has come to my attention and he, he told me about an incident in his life that um it's unbelievable and and i i just can't keep it to myself uh i feel the need to share it with you guys so let's check out what 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 went on here so this ryan guy he was arrested for possessing an offensive weapon in the early hours of tuesday officers escorted the hooded and handcuffed suspect to his public housing flat in Wong Tai Sin, uh, which is, uh, I believe, in Hong Kong, uh, for a house search. The Hong Kong resident, believed to be from the Sun Yi On triad, is a part-time bouncer at a Sim Sha Su entertainment venue controlled by a gang leader named Sai B, according to a police source. Police are still looking for the elderly victim, who was allegedly stopped on the street by Ryan and ordered at knife point to drink a can of Coke at the junction of Iran Street and Canton Road and Mong Kok at about 5 p.m. on Friday. 
Officers were sent to the scene after receiving a report from a passerby. The suspect hurled the knife on the floor, grabbed the drink can from the victim, and fled on foot before they arrived. Police seized the weapon at the scene, but the victim had also left. No one was injured in the incident. A police source said the suspect carried the knife for his own protection because he owed someone money. Quote, initial investigation shows the suspect is a drug abuser, the source said, adding that it was possible that he had been under the influence of drugs at the time. He said the suspect was identified after officers examined security camera footage from the scene. As of noon on Tuesday, the man is still being held for, Ryan, I should say, is still being held for questioning uh, and had not been charged. Detectives from the Mongkok Police District Anti-Triad Squad are handling the case. <laughs> Um, according to the official uh, statistics, police handled 971 reports of triad-related crimes in the first. I don't know what the fuck any of that means. So, yeah, I mean, really, the headline here is uh, suspected Hong Kong triad member Ryan Crum was arrested after allegedly forcing an elderly uh, man to drink Coke, a can of Coke at knife point. He does, he, if he doesn't want to drink the Coke... Then just let Leave him, him alone. drink something else. Leave him alone. And that's don't that's, force him to drink Coke. Not everybody likes Coke. Not everybody has to like right. Coke. And that's the point that I've been trying to make this whole time with Ryan. You know, but, but apparently he felt passionate enough about it that he wanted to, you know, threaten somebody. And that's just that's not cool, man. You know, I mean, no. Now, if it was. Uh, <laughs> If somebody had a, a knife to me and were telling me to drink Pepsi, I'd say just go ahead and stab me in the neck and get it over with <laughs> because I fucking loathe Pepsi. The only thing they've ever done right is Mountain Dew, in my opinion. But, you know, Coke yeah. has Mellow Yellow, which is better than Mountain Dew. Or, yes, it or is. Or equal, you know, I don't know. It's a little better. It's better. Better. Yeah. <laughs> Damn. It's smoother. Damn, Mike is... It doesn't taste as much like battery acid at times. Yeah. Mike will die on that hill. You're like, it is better. Definitively. <laughs> there is no no debate, no room for argument. I, I don't mind Mountain Dew. I used to drink it all the time, and I still drink it every now and then if there's no Mellow Yellow. But if there's Mellow, <laughs> there's yellow, no Mellow yellow and there's Mountain Dew, I'm choosing Mellow Yellow. Yeah. I have a can of Mellow Yellow in my hand right now. Oh, my goodness, Mike. You, all, you're just drinking all your calories, buddy. <laughs> How did Mellow Yellow become, um, or not, or Mountain Dew rather? How did that become like the default neck beard beverage of choice? I don't know. I, I I would think it was probably maybe advertising and stuff like that. That's a possibility. Um, Mellow Yellow for some reason is the official soda of deer hunters everywhere, which doesn't make any sense. Oh, I have because there's like camo cans. Speaking of Mountain Dew, I have to read this article. You guys are not going to believe this shit. I was told about this last night by my friend Harvey when I was at the show. Uh, I didn't believe it myself, but I, I just looked it up here. and Because um, he was telling me there's parts in the country where Mountain Dew is easier to come by than water. And so a mm -hmm. lot of people in this region are getting what's known as Mountain Dew mouth. It's basically yep. like their teeth are getting all fucked up. So I'll just read through this article real quick and then we'll just call it a call it a day. Um, and this is an article from NPR, and it's called Mountain Dew Mouth is Destroying Appalachia's Teeth, Critics Say. Obesity, diabetes. By now, we've all heard of the health risks proposed by drinking too much soda. But over in Appalachia, the region that stretches roughly from southern New York State 
to Alabama, the fight against soda is targeting an altogether different concern, rotted teeth. Public health advocates say as soft drinks are driving the region's alarmingly high incidence of eroded brown teeth, a phenomenon dubbed Mountain Dew Mouth, after the region's favorite drink. They want to tackle the problem with policies including restricting soda purchases with food stamps, now called the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program. Are, are they brushing their teeth? That's the thing. Like, are they are they doing anything like that? Yeah, I don't like, know. Part of me is like, is this 100% the soda that's responsible, or is it the people who are drinking the soda? Like, if you don't brush your teeth, then yeah, of course your teeth are going to be, you know, get rotted and brown and blood, whatever, if you drink too much Mountain Dew. So there's fucking chemicals and shit in it. The more thing that the thing that I found more worrisome from some people is there's like this dye that like apparently makes you impotent or something kill kill your kill your sperm so if you want to you know procreate that sucks but you could argue that in you know areas where there's a lot of incest going on that that's that's honest the Mountain Dew. Uh, epidemic or whatever is is doing everyone a favor. Yeah, they're saying in this article that um, <laughs> dentists have found that the effects of soda on teeth are strikingly similar to the effects of methamphetamine or crack on teeth. Um, <laughs> drinking more than a soda a day raises the risk that acids found in many soft and energy drinks will eat away your tooth enamel and its pearly white color. Yeah. Well, yeah. Yeah. I knew that. Um. Back in 2009, Priscilla Harris, an associate professor at the Appalachian College of Law, issued the first battle cry in the war against Mountain Dew Mouth with a legal brief entitled Undoing the Damage of the Dew, which explores <laughs> how the drink became ingrained in the region's hey, culture. You didn't have to do the dew. You didn't have to do the dew. No one forced... It said do the dew, but but that was merely a suggestion. It wasn't a command, though. It no. may have seemed that way. You don't have to do the do, Appalachia. Don't blame. Although soda. apparently Ryan's going around forcing people to do the do with the <laughs> Coca-Cola incident. I mean, do the Coke. <laughs> God, I could use some Coke today. I'm so low energy. Need a little pick me up. This is this is one of my this is one of my uh, lower energy podcasts for sure. I even had to. No, it's just. You're just being chill. Yeah, there you go. This is no, this is actually ASMR. That's what this whole podcast has been. This is supposed <laughs> to give you the tingling feeling down your spine. If you don't know what ASMR is, look that shit up on YouTube. It's creepy to me. I don't know about it's just it's just shit like that or something, you know. Yeah, does that give you a boner? Does it make your nipples tingle? <laughs> if it does, then maybe you're you're into ASMR. Me, I am not. It gives me anxiety. <laughs> Yep, it's it's that kind of shit. It's it's weird. It's supposed to make your spine tingle, but I don't know. Um, yeah. So anyway, um, I guess people in Appalachia are kind of stupid, and they don't stop doing the do. There's nothing more disgusting though. When see, I saw this guy recently. Um, he was a drummer for some band, and his grill was all kinds of fucked up, and. Like he had like his, well, that he had, could be Mountain Dew mouth, but that could also be it, yeah. It just looked like drugs. It looked like I don't know what what the case was. He had all he had those kind of teeth where they have like brown shit in between the spaces of the teeth, 
And I remember seeing pictures in the dentist office when I was a kid of like what. Oh yeah, those 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 scaremongering. Yeah, the the pictures. pictures where it almost looks like your teeth are like a peanut butter and jelly sandwich because it's like oh. you know you got the white <laughs> teeth and then you got the purple and brown oh. in the middle and it's like what. Thanks for ruining peanut butter and jelly sandwiches, Yeah, Josh. you're welcome. <laughs> but I'm like looking at that shit and I'm like, it almost looks like you could take a piece of floss and like floss that shit out of your teeth. But no, apparently that's that's there to stay. And it's very disgusting. And I don't know how. S- I don't I don't I don't drink more than uh, the most I've ever drank in terms of soda. And one day is two cans. But normally I don't do two cans. I'm going to do like one I usually have but, I usually have know, about like, three to four cans of Coke Zero a day, so I'm kind of. But I brush my teeth every night, so I mean, yeah, I, I think I'm good. My teeth seem to be all right. I'm 30 years old, and they're they're <laughs> doing all right. They look pretty good in pictures and all. But anyway, uh, yeah, I think that's I think that's the podcast for this week. I'm sorry, I'm so low energy. I just I had a lot to drink last night, and I'm a little hungover today. <laughs> I'm not gonna lie. He didn't have his Coke. No, actually, I did. I'm. I just finished it while we were on the podcast. I'm not. I'm. I'm not talking about that. Oh, Coke. yeah, my my white girl. Yeah, that's what they call it on the street, or they just call it girl. And heroin is called boy. So you parents out there, what? Yeah, yeah. You got any boy? You got any girl? That's code for uh, heroin and cocaine, respectively. So parents listening to this podcast, how do you know about Because I dated a fucking heroin addict a long time ago. Oh, okay. I didn't know she was a heroin addict until after the fact, and I was like, "Oh, good. Why don't I go and get tested for HIV right the fuck now?" <laughs> Goddamn, yeah. sharing needles and shit. Yeah, yeah. I've made some mistakes in my life, people. What? <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. So parents who are listening to this podcast, if you have a kid out there and they're saying. Yo, dog, you got any girl? They're probably not talking about the female variety. They're probably talking about blow, coke, <laughs> Appalachian dancing powder, yam yam, the good stuff. So check your kids' phones. <laughs> I don't know. Um, If you were to make one of those over-the-top crazy drug PSAs, what would your, what would your drug PSA be? I dude, I can't do any improv right now. I'm so my brain <laughs> frequencies are 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 retarded, and I don't mean that to make fun of mentally disabled. I mean they're retarded in the definition of they are slowed down, or they are non-existent. Um. Anyway, if you'd like to catch, I think it'd be it'd be tough to top uh Pee Wee Herman saying crack is crack. Whack. This is crack. Yeah, this is crack. Yeah. <laughs> So anyway, if you guys want to follow me and Mike on YouTube, you can do that by Mike. Mike's YouTube address is youtube.com slash OCP communications. Um, he does movie reviews. What was the last movie you reviewed, Mike? The Predator. Oh, my God. Will you stop talking about that? Get it, can you get off it already with The Predator? <laughs> I'm so tired of seeing that shit in my news feed. I'm about to unfriend you and block you. <laughs> I stopped talking about the Predator recently. That's the last time. I'm. I don't even want to talk about it anymore. Like I, I, that video took dozens of takes to finally get the get one done. Was this the original I, I was Predator? Running out of energy. No, the the absolute piece of <laughs> shit 
2018 sequel, which is an embarrassing slap in the face and disgrace of the franchise. That probably. Ah, okay. That one. Um, so yeah, he does that. You can follow me on YouTube at youtube.com slash dancing with ghosts, which is also my band name. If you want to look us up on Spotify, um, I do a bunch of different videos. Um, uh, I, the most recent one you did is rather interesting, interesting choice. Uh, of content. Uh, yeah, I just did a video about, um, I just released it uh, a few hours ago and it's already turning out to be, it's looking like it's going to be an abysmal failure. Um, and it is the <laughs> ultimate guide to boss guitar pedals. So if you, if you are a musician out there and you are interested in guitar pedals or the company boss or the company Roland, um, check the video out. It's, it's a book I got a long time ago and now it's actually really rare and it's out of print. And it's funny because it's one of those books where it's got the price printed on the back above the barcode and it uh -huh. says 1995. Yeah. And now the book's going for like 80 and 90 dollars. So it's kind of funny that it's like 1995. It's like, yeah, you wish. But yeah, it's you just sell it's a it. really no, I'm I'm holding on to it. I like when shit gets like rare and expensive, I like holding on to it. It's <laughs> kind of cool. Um, but yeah, that's the video I just put out. So but uh, man, I I did a uh, before that I I went on a Bill Cosby rant. And what, you know, because he recently got sentenced to uh, three to ten years, I think, um, for... Have you seen that vi that uh, that clip from the Cosby show where he's talking about the special barbecue sauce? Uh-uh. It is it is really unsettling to watch. Oh, shit. It, it's, he's talking about some barbecue sauce that makes people loopy and whatever. Oh, and all. I'm, we, I have to, like, look that up. Yeah, he's, he's literally just admitting... Holy shit. ...that shit on his show. Yeah. It's crazy how back then, like, nobody really thought that much about it. But then now you're doing, you're digging, and then you look back and you're like, whoa, there were signs even on his show. Oh, damn. Yeah. That was like the first thing that came up when I typed Bill Cosby in. So I'm guessing it's become, oh, it's got like over a million views. So yeah, I guess it is totally yep. viral now. Yeah. I was just going off on him, uh, basically, like, he, you know, he was reported as saying in court, he's like, well, I just gave the young woman quaaludes in the same way that you'd give a woman a drink to help her calm down. It's like, no, Cosby, no. you don't. A 70 something year old comedian doesn't go, hey, you look nervous. Would you like a quaalude? It's like, that's so fucking who does that? Anyway, I go all in depth into that, but I also talk Bill Cosby does that. Yeah, apparently. But on my channel, I also talk about video games and current events and music. I I honestly do too much shit. I've speaking of Cosby, I think that would make a really interesting and potentially excellent biopic in the future. To like have someone like when Cat Cosby passes away, do a Cosby film that talks about you know his rise to fame and how he was considered to be this this really uh admired figure and in 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 the comedy community and, and all across the world and this in this image of wholesomeness and then show his fall yeah and you know the, how his perception has changed dramatically um the bbc did something like that on cosby um i haven't seen it mm -hmm. yet but Anyway, I'm fucking starving. I gotta get some food, and I gotta go to my fucking karaoke gig, so that's all the time we got for this yeah, week, folks. Yeah, I should probably get going, too, because I gotta get ready to go to work. Alright, gang, as usual, we'll talk to you next week. Um, 
Oh yeah, join our Patreon. Me and Mike just did an hour, um, if not more, of of pure chit chat. The chit chat cast. You can find it on our Patreon page. It's Patreon.com/slash Uncovering Unexplained Mysteries. We talk about the hit piece that was made on Mike on YouTube. Someone made a video where their sole intention was to slander Mike. It was crazy. We talk about uh, <laughs> TV shows, uh, when you should cancel a TV show and when you should keep it going. We talk about um, some other stuff on there. And uh, I go into detail about um, the time that I was taken advantage of sexually by an older yeah. German woman. Shit gets really serious. Yeah, so if you want to check that out, consider becoming a Patreon member. It's patreon.com slash uncovering unexplained mysteries. Until next time, have a good rest of your week. Goodbye. See ya. Oh, that was a delayed see ya, but all right. I'll take it. <laughs> What's up, everybody? Just want to remind everyone that my album, The Nightmare Inside You, is still up for sale, and we have new band t-shirts as well. All of this is in the description of this podcast, so check it out, and if you dig the music, maybe consider supporting me. Now, enjoy some more of the album.